The following audio is from The Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Palm Sunday. This is Holy Week. If you're not super familiar with faith, maybe you're rather new to faith in Christ, this is what we call Holy Week. It has to do with Jesus coming towards Jerusalem, uh, Good Friday, the crucifixion, uh, resurrection, Easter Sunday next week. So it's an exciting time um, as we gather and talk about um, Palm Sunday. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. If you're looking for a spot to land, I always encourage you to bring a Bible. Of course, if you've got a smartphone with a Bible app, you can go ahead and turn to Luke 19 as well. Um, I want to give a little shout out to the worship team today. I thought they did a great job, thought especially that worship leader, man, she really, um, I tell you what, something about her, but uh, anyways, that's my wife if you're wondering, like, that's a weird thing to say. We're married, all right, so let's keep going. Anyway, Luke 19, now I will say that um, we're talking about what we call Palm Sunday, and I've chosen the Gospel of Luke to speak out of today, and yet there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The one Gospel that doesn't mention the palm fronds is Luke, so you're welcome for that little tidbit. Um, But uh, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 29, it says this, as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying that colt? Say to them, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples joyfully began to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Father, I pray you would open all of our hearts. God, as we navigate this text, as we look at some other portions of scripture, I pray for open hearts because I believe that today it's an incredibly timely message. I believe today in the world that we live in, Palm Sunday has an especial significance, God, in all that we face. I pray what would come true is the points of this message, God, in Jesus' name, amen. So here's Jesus, and and as we look at the Gospels, like I said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's four different eyewitness accounts of of what had happened. Luke did some interviews and wrote down what he uh, understood to have happened, but it talks about Jesus approaching Jerusalem, making his way towards the cross. He had told the disciples that they were going to persecute him, have him arrested, he would be crucified, and on the third day, he would raise again. They didn't fully comprehend what he was saying, but the beauty of what you see in Luke 19 starting at verse 29, is Jesus walking in obedience to what he knew he ought to do, even though what he knew was going to be treacherous for him personally. What he understood was going to be brutal for him personally, and yet for you and I, the value of his obedience cannot be underestimated, cannot be, you know, underplayed here. It's a very significant thing. 
But it says this, there's something about in a bunch of verses, he's, you know, they're going to you know, the, the, Mount of the, the Mount of Olives, says, go to the village ahead of you, verse 30, and he talks about this colt. And you and I would read this and go, okay, he rides a donkey, and I've heard this before, and they, they get out, you know, they, they break off palm branches, and they wave them, and they spread out their cloaks, and here's Jesus, and what a cool moment, what an unusual moment, but here's something that maybe you never understood, Zechariah. Zechariah is one of our Old Testament books. It's a minor prophet book, basically meaning shorter than larger prophetic books in the Old Testament. But Zechariah was a prophet during the time that Israel had, they had been exiled, okay? They had been disobedient to what God had said. They split into two nations, Israel and Judah, and they were both exiled. By 586 BC, the last group of exiles was taken into captivity. Decades go by, and finally, some of them are released from exile to go back to Jerusalem to help settle it as a city. So the Israelites go back to Jerusalem, and they're going to rebuild the wall, and they're going to rebuild the temple. Zechariah was a prophet during the time of the rebuilding of the temple, somewhere in the window of you know, 520 to 500 B.C., so what Zechariah writes is 500 years before what we're reading about here and Jesus heading to the Mount of Olives and towards Jerusalem and towards crucifixion. If you're taking notes, write down Zechariah 9, verses 8 and 9. I want to read those verses to you. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious. Now, I want to walk you through this text because remember, Jesus said, go get the colt, untie it, bring it here. It's never been ridden. I'm going to get on it and I'm going to ride it. And that's exactly what happens. But this was a prophetic verse from Zechariah and there's nothing unusual about the first part of verse nine. But what this is, is a declaration about a coming king we understand today that the Messiah, the coming king, and it says, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Now, real quick, typically, we can understand the idea of a king being victorious. This is kind of a coronation idea, the king being crowned. This is awesome. We have a new king. He's victorious, but not every king has been righteous. Not every king has done the right things. And yet Zechariah is saying there's a coming king who's righteous and victorious. Anybody heard of King Henry VIII, okay? Six wives, not all of them lived well and enjoyed life to be old and all that stuff. So anyway, we know kings aren't always righteous, but the idea of a king being victorious would have been a common thing to celebrate at a coronation. So, so far, what Zechariah has said is spot on, great king, wonderful, but then he says righteous and victorious, and it might cause our ears to perk up. Okay, righteous, okay, that's a little different, but remember, this is a prophetic verse talking about the Messiah, and it would require that the word righteous is part of, of who this Messiah is, righteous and victorious, and then it takes a really odd left turn when it says this, lowly. At a coronation, there wasn't anything lowly about a king being crowned. There would have been chariots, there would have been horses, there would have been pomp and circumstance and trumpets, and there wouldn't have been anybody within the vicinity that would question, hey, who's the new king? And yet Zechariah prophetically says, your king is coming, righteous and victorious, lowly, and then something even worse, riding on a donkey. Like, wait, what? 
Why is a king riding on a donkey? A donkey was a humble animal. And the idea of a donkey, in fact, oddly enough, in the Old Testament, would have represented peace. And that's where I want to begin to get into what I'm talking about today, because Zechariah says, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Never been, Jesus has never been ridden before. And once again, you and I could breeze right past that. Like, okay, great. That's neat. But again, this was to fulfill the prophecy from Zechariah and the idea that had never been written what what was symbolic of what was coming that was new. Jesus coming as the Messiah is a new thing to a world waiting for the Messiah. So here's Jesus on this donkey bringing a new way and you and I could take for granted that we understand what we're talking about is the New Testament. What we're talking about is the new covenant. We took communion a couple of weeks ago together and very much so centers around a new covenant in the blood of Jesus, the crucifixion that would bring us forgiveness of sins. But what Zechariah said, it would have been really odd to say, there's a coming king that's going to ride on a donkey, lowly, righteous. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say this, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. And the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. This is the opposite of a typical king's coronation. The war horses, no, no, we don't want war horses. We don't need a bunch of chariots. We don't need the pomp and circumstance. When the Messiah comes, it's going to be in a way that you don't necessarily comprehend. Go back to Isaiah 300 years before Zechariah, 800 years before Jesus, who in chapter 53 of Isaiah talked about the suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. One of the things I love about scripture is that as you continue to learn and and grow in your understanding of it, the better you begin to comprehend what God has done in Christ and that he was making a way and he was making it clear at certain points. And when you put the pieces together, it's an absolute miracle. Zechariah says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. Once again, not unusual things to have at a ceremony that would be a coronation. And then this, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river, which would be capital R, meaning Euphrates, the Euphrates River. The river is what they referred to it as back in that day. When anybody say the river, that would be the river. From the river to the ends of the earth. In the world that you and I live in, let me ask you this. Anybody out there say that you would see a lot of lack of peace in our world right now? Anybody see, you see a lot of turmoil in our world right now? A lot of dissension, a lot of rage, a lot of anger, a lot of impatience, a lot of, you know, no, no, no mercy towards other people. Anybody see that besides me? Our world seems to be filled with all of these things that are causing a turmoil that that so many people live with a low-grade anxiety. 
That so many people live with a sense of, 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 of you, know, you can't sleep and your mind won't turn off and you're wondering what is the day, what is the week, what is the year going to look like? Many of us were like, man, flush 2020, let's get into 2021 only to realize just because the year changes doesn't mean everything's different. What better day than Palm Sunday than to remind you the reason it's Palm Sunday is because it's at this moment that Jesus gets on this never-ridden cult to proclaim a new way, and it was a way of peace and a way of reconciliation. There's two words that our world needs right now. There's two words that you need right now. And two words that I also need right now. When you think about turmoil and divisiveness and pride and hate, those are vices of worldliness. Vices, meaning things that don't belong in our lives and that you and I can fall prey to all the time. Ways that you and I feel angry towards others. Ways that others feel angry toward us. There's a world of unfriending and a world of, of fighting back and reading comments on social media only to see how mad do people actually get. Which, by the way, you would do well to stop reading those. The news all the time. If all you do is watch news cycles, I guarantee you have a lot less peace than you should. And I'm not saying you and I bury our heads in the sand, but what you need to do is live in benevolent detachment. Graciously pulling back from the ongoing cycle of anger and rage and hate and dissension and violence and all this stuff that goes on in our world. Jesus is riding on a donkey and you go, that's a weird left turn from what you were just saying. No, 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 it's not. Because Jesus riding on a donkey was prophetic and symbolic of the peace he was coming to bring to a world full of turmoil. Not a lot different than the world you and I live in today. While you could say, well, yeah, but they didn't have social media and 24-hour news cycle. No, 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 no. They had the village busybodies, though. They had the people that would spread the angst. They had government takeovers and hostile situations and people could be, you know, murdered all the time and, 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 and weird things that would happen in a system that was wildly unjust. It was a political hotbed in Jesus' day, whether you realize it or not. And yet here comes Jesus on a donkey, a way of peace and reconciliation to bring a new way. Now here's the catch. Some of you go, I would have peace, but it's them. I would have peace, but it's that situation. I would have peace, but it's out of my control. I can't have peace because of that or them or, or, or whatever it would be. And we excuse why that doesn't apply to us. Can I challenge you today? Do you believe God is who he says he is? Do you believe in his sovereignty? Do you believe in his ability to be the Lord of your life? Do you believe that? Or do you just talk about it or think about it or read about it and somehow excuse how it doesn't apply to you? Have you ever read scripture? Have you ever read stories like Joseph back in Genesis who had a bunch of brothers and he was the youngest at this point and there will be another one born later, Benjamin, but here's Joseph Back in Genesis, and, and, and Joseph has a dream about stocks of grain, and he's standing there as a stock of grain, and all these grains bow down to him. 
And he says, hey, family, come here. I had a dream. Guess what? I had a dream that I was standing as a stalk of grain, and all these stalks around me began to bow down. Then he has another dream. Hey, I had a dream. And it was a dream that, that it was as the constellations, and I was one of the stars, and all the other stars and moon, they all began to bow down. Well, what do the brothers think of it? Oh, you think you're going to rule over us? You had a dream, and you think you're better? You think God's going to do something to make you better than us? And they were jealous, so what did they do? They were out in the field doing their thing, and here comes Joseph to check on him because he was kind of a tattletale to his dad. Here comes the dreamer. Let's take care of business. I say we have him killed. And Reuben, who's a super nice brother, is like, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. (laughs) That'd be way better, right? I mean, at least he's not dead. I mean, these guys are amazing. Talk about character. And so they sell him off into slavery. And what does he do? He ends up in the house of Potiphar. And in the house of Potiphar, he's not crying and whining and yelling and complaining about how bad everything is. What does he do? Here I am, I'm stuck. I realize I can't talk my way out of it and I can't escape. That's not the solution. So I'm going to be diligent to work hard and show that I am blessed by God. So he works hard and what happens? He ends up second in command in the whole household. And then there's this gal named Potiphar's wife. She doesn't actually have a name in scripture. Potiphar's wife. And what does Potiphar's wife think? Joseph, you know, I have braces or I would whistle, right? So that's the best I can do. And she sees him and she's like, man, I dig this guy. He's good looking. He's diligent. I'd like to make him my lover. And she comes up to Joseph and day after day is like, come on, let's have some fun. Come on, let's have some fun. And Joseph's like, listen, my master is your husband. Potiphar has put me in charge of everything in this house and I have control and it's actually been a pretty decent thing. But the one thing that I don't have control over is you. You're not mine, you're his. And if I do that against him, I'm doing it against God. How dare I do that? No way. And what does she do? No sweat, no problem, I'll back off. No, no, no. She goes to her husband and says, he's been trying to make sport of me. Love that phrase. Well, you're trying to play tennis? No, 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 you don't understand. Like, make sport. <laughs> she completely lies and turns it around. And what happens to Joseph? Potiphar, without even hearing from him at all, listening to what he has to say, kicks him out and sends him to a dungeon. What does Joseph do? It's out of control. And yet even still there, he serves with all of his heart diligently. And what happens in the dungeon? He becomes king of the dungeon, which is such a weird thing. But basically, the, 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 the guys in the dungeon see that he has favor, and they're like, well, you're diligent, we trust you, we'll put you in charge, all this stuff. So as bad as it would be in a dungeon, he's still kind of like in command or in control, sort of in the dungeon underneath the, the, the wardens of the dungeon. And, and all of a sudden, the cupbearer and the baker to the king get thrown in jail for whatever, and they both have these dreams, and Joseph tells them what the dreams mean. And he says to one of them, well, here, here's what your dream means, and, and it means you're going to die in a couple days. And I'd be like, whoa, Joseph, can we revisit this? But, but that's what he says. And then the other guy says, well, here's my dream. And, and he tells him the dream, he says, well, your dream means you're going to be serving the king again, no sweat. And exactly what Joseph says is what happens. But Joseph says to the guy that's going to go back and serve the king, just don't forget me. I'm not supposed to be in here. Just don't forget me. And then it says two years goes by. Joseph isn't living bitter and angry. Joseph is making the most of where he's at. And over and over, what you see in the story of Joseph is a sense of God is still in control, even though I don't get it. 
He could have whined and kicked and screamed. He could have carved the grain, bowing down to the one grain on the walls of his dungeon and, and, and kept telling people had shirts made when he's in Potiphar's house, like, I don't belong here, you know, hashtag or whatever. He doesn't do that. He makes the most out of where he's at, and yet he had a dream about somehow he was going to be in charge of something. And as time goes on, Pharaoh has a dream, and none of the astrologers, nobody can interpret it. And all of a sudden, the baker goes, oh, wait a minute. I forgot about a guy in jail that can actually interpret the dreams. So so Pharaoh calls him in, and Joseph shows up, and and Pharaoh goes, I heard you can interpret dreams. And Joseph's like, well, I can't, which is not the way I would have started the conversation. But he literally goes, I can't, but God can. And, and, And so... Long story short, Pharaoh tells him the, the, the two dreams he has about um, there's a bunch of, of fat grain, healthy grain, and a bunch of, of skinny little grain and comes and eats up the fat grain. So there's a bunch of skinny little grains left. And then he says, I had another dream. And he says, it was a bunch of fat cows and they were healthy and fat and looked great. But a bunch of gaunt little skinny cows came and ate up the fat cows. And then there was just the skinny cows left. And the Lord shows him what it means. And he says, Pharaoh, here's what it is. There's going to be seven years of, of, of great, you know, harvest, of great years of, of, of having all this stuff. But, but that's going to be followed by seven really bad years. So what you need to do is prepare now, which this is a sermon for some of you in its own. The idea of preparing and being ready for, for days that aren't so good rather than living hand to mouth. But side note, Pharaoh is like, wow, that's amazing. You, you could interpret that, those dreams. He says, is there anybody that could, could you know, and do that? There's nobody else. That could, is there anybody that can, can be in charge of this? Well, Joseph, I want you to be in charge. You will be second in command of the entire kingdom. You, be, aside from the throne, you will rule everything. And the seven great years goes by, and, and then seven years of famine hit, and who shows up to get grain? The brothers. It's been 13 years since they've seen Joseph. 17 years old when they shipped him off, and now he's 30 years old, and he's second in command in all of Egypt. And what happens? When they show up to get grain, what do they do? They bow in respect. And what is that? The fulfillment of the dreams Joseph had when he was a kid. Why do I go through all that? I go through all that because what you do so easily is you go, I could have peace if this situation wasn't happening. I could have peace if this person wasn't in my life and ruining everything. I could have peace if if this didn't go on or that wasn't going on in my life. And you excuse why peace doesn't apply to you. And yet, Jesus was riding on a donkey. You're like, what? It says here, when you understand what was happening with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, it began Holy Week. And they bow down and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they wave palm branches and the Pharisees are so upset at what they're saying because they're basically declaring that this king, this Jesus on a colt is the Messiah. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, you need to shut these guys up. That's not okay. And what does Jesus say to them? You know what? If I shut them up, see those rocks over here and over there? Even they would cry out. And then what does Jesus say to end this portion of the story? As he approached Jerusalem, verse 41 of Luke 19, and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known what would bring you peace. What about you? 
if you would only understand who Jesus is, if you would only wrap your head around this Messiah that loved you enough that he was obedient to go to the cross to bring you peace, that not only would you be reconciled to God, dealing with the issue of sin that separates us from God, but on top of that, your ability to have that peace and lean into your faith and trust that God is in control in the midst of things that feel so out of your control. Peace. That not only do you receive it, but you're an ambassador of it. See, the other part of understanding what Zechariah was saying in chapter 9, verse 10 he will proclaim peace to who? To the nations. Who are the nations? Well, he goes on to describe it. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to where? The ends of the earth. It was a prophetic verse about what Jesus would do so that every individual, no matter race, no matter upbringing, no matter rich or poor, no matter if you own a home or you're homeless, no matter if you got it all together or not, no matter where you come from, no matter where you've been, that the gospel of peace is a gospel of reconciliation for every person. Can I remind us there's no room for bigotry? Can I remind everyone there's no room for racism? Can I remind everyone there's no reason for you to look down your nose at somebody who came to the country and speaks a different language than you? They better learn English. What are the things that you've said? What are the things that you've whispered? What are the things that you believe? What are the things that you hold on to that keep the peace of Christ from extending and pouring out into the lives of other people that don't yet have the gospel in their lives? It's a gospel of peace. But that peace is brought to a gospel of reconciliation, a gospel that reaches into every life, a gospel that is for every person. And I can stand up here and shamefully admit there are things I've said over the years that I realize, man, that's, that's not okay. Ways that I've acted, I realize that's not okay. God, how do I shine my light? How do I deal with the sin, the stuff in me that somehow I put myself on a pedestal and I hate to admit that? That I want to let this gospel of peace infiltrate my heart in such a way that, man, it, it brings a humility to me. It brings a grace to me that I can love every person. Zechariah said this gospel of peace is for all the nations. It's why in the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, John has this vision of heaven. And what does it say? A people from every tribe, tongue, nation in heaven. Is that your heart? Is that your passion? 
And do you have peace or do you find yourself living in turmoil? I wanna pray. And I just want God to do a little introspection in every one of our hearts as we pray together. Can we do that? Father, in a world right now that seems so far gone from peace, in all of the divisiveness that we see, in all of the backbiting that we see, in all of the dissension and rage and hate and confusion and impatience that we have, God, I pray that we personally, we would look in our own world, that we would consider in our own hearts, am I contributing to the dissension? Am I contributing to the hatred? Am I contributing to it becoming worse or am I asking for your peace? Am I surrendering to this Jesus that was riding a donkey that seems like a little insignificant portion of the story, but it's not. Jesus that would bring a new way that meant peace for all of us because of him. And God, I pray for peace in hearts right now. I pray for some that are losing sleep and have such an anxiety. I pray for peace. I pray for some that are thinking about circumstances and their mind won't turn off. And so it's at 2 a.m. And then it's at 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. Then it's throughout the day. And at certain moments and we feel riled up and we feel impatient. I pray for a new peace in their hearts. I pray for some that are looking at life. You know, I, I'm not busy because of this. I've been laid off. I don't even have, I don't. And I feel the, the anxiety because I don't even know what to do. God, I pray for peace. God, you're going to direct. I believe that. I pray for peace in every single heart. But I also pray, God, that this peace in us would lead us to be ambassadors of peace. That just like Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. God, we would be people that make peace, that, that, that we shine in such a way that people want that in their lives. And that, God, if there's any sense in us of racism or bigotry or, or Lord, certain people that believe a different way or, or all, all kinds of different ways that, that people aren't processing life the way that maybe we are, it doesn't make us better. But, God, I pray it would create in us a humility that causes us to love well, to shine light, to be what you've called us to be for a world that desperately needs it. Jesus, help us be people of reconciliation. Just like Zechariah said of the Messiah, the king that would come on a donkey, bringing a new way. Father, help us live in that new covenant, the work of Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.